This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalife. This is the 100th episode of Let's Grab Coffee, so uh, super excited. It's been a bit of a long ride, uh, you know, I think four, four and a half years, five years in. So uh, it feels good. It feels good to reach this milestone, although a bit more gradual than I, I would have hoped. But, um, you know, wanted to do this milestone with someone who uh, was obviously very close to, to my personal professional life in many ways. We'll get to some of the, the context in a bit, but John, cheers. I know you had your coffee. You beat me to it. But uh, thanks cheers. for doing this. Happy to be here, George. Great to see you. Appreciate it, man. And for, for a lot of people who know me, especially close friends, I know Jean de Gagne is a close mentor of mine who's been a close mentor since my university days. So we've known each other for, I was thinking about this early when I was uh, you know, getting ready for this. I think it's been like seven, eight years, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, probably. Yeah. About yeah. right. Um, so again, you've been instrumental. I really, I wanted to, I wanted to reiterate that. I know you know this and I know you don't love the, the soft, uh, cheesy stuff, but I just wanted uh, people listening who don't know you to know how important uh, this milestone is, uh, but to also share it with you. So thanks again for that. Um, you've had a very interesting ride, you know, something I resonate a lot with you is when you look back at your story and we're going to get into that in a second, it's, it's super interesting how you've pivoted in, in very different directions from your starting accounting to your, uh, different roles within investment banking, within risk management, different executive roles. And I think a lot of people listening, I think would, would find that piece valuable and knowing that it's not just one script. At least that's what I took away from knowing your story much more deeply. But take us back to, you know, the first uh, the first charters or the, maybe the first chapter of, of uh, Jean de Gagne's profession when, when it started with PWC as an accountant. Well, you know, I, I, I'm a CPA, not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> and uh, I did my, you know, like most CPAs did my first couple of years uh, uh, auditing, um, first in Ottawa and then in Toronto. So in Ottawa, you know, it was a lot of, uh, of, uh, not-for-profits and government agencies you know it was it was actually um, a bit soul-destroying as an auditor I have to say you know I remember one organization I think they had something to do with plantains a UN organization and the board would meet sort of every two or three months and they would travel around the world to wherever it was hot that particular <laughs> month and uh, and from what I you know as an auditor you read minutes from what I could tell all he ever talked about was the fact that the, the executive director wanted a Mercedes and they were concerned as a plantain focus and you know, development focus UN organization they they couldn't do that so after a year of meetings they decided to buy him a Renault which is actually you know, 25 grand more expensive than the Mercedes he was looking at and you know and I thought you know if this is the kind of organization that uh, that's out there it's not really something I want to be part of and and so I eventually left Ottawa and I, I came to Toronto uh, with Pricewaterhouse as well but focused on financial services that's really where uh, my career started to get quite interesting. Um, and the theme you'll hear today as I talk about my career is, is, is number one, how lucky I've been. And I'll talk about that. Um, luck is a big, big part of what I've been able to achieve. And B, um, I decided early on that my brand would be about adaptability and change and looking around corners um, as opposed to specific domain knowledge. And so, you know, as, 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 a, as a financial services uh, um, guy in Toronto, this was right when derivatives were just starting to come out and a fixed floating interest rate swap was like the most exotic financial instrument you could ever imagine. And so, you know, there really was no one in our firm that knew anything about it, you know, and these were starting to appear in, in all of our audits. And uh, so I decided what the hell might as well ask if I could be the derivatives guy. And so I actually became the financial services uh, uh, manager in, 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 in for the Toronto office reporting to the, reporting to the, 
the, the responsible partner and got involved in research and talking to banks and, and advising on all sorts of different uh, um, you know, capital management and treasury issues, just because I kind of knew what a fixed floating swap was and nobody else did. And uh, so that was really a lot of fun. Was that, was that self-learn? Like when you, when you saw these products emerge, did you take that chance to, to learn it yourself? Or Yeah, but, but like many consultants, I mean, I learned it on my customer's dime and spent sure. a lot of time working with our clients, understanding what they were doing. And then, you know, with our national office, other places, figuring out how to get the accounting right. Um, in retrospect, it was actually relatively straightforward stuff, um, but uh, at the time, it didn't feel that way. Um, the um, the really cool part about that, though, is, is, is it, it allowed me to move out of audit into uh, into consulting, and I really, really enjoyed consulting on all sorts of capital management, treasury hedging, um, you know, any, any kind of financial services issue, and, and that that was quite broadening, and really opened my eyes to a lot of different. Uh, parts of the financial services uh, world. And uh, after a while, I actually uh, got tired of the consulting because those of you who are consultants know that typically you you get a call at 4.30 on Friday. Um, It used to be to get on a plane, not a lot of that going on right now, but to to get on your Zoom. And, 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 you know, clients always have crises on Friday afternoons, it seems. And then, you know, you have to react and adjust to that. I, I also got tired of doing a lot of work and writing what I thought were really great reports and then watching the clients sort of um, either ignore them Thank or you. watch the implementation or whatever. And so eventually um, I decided I should probably get a real job. And uh, I, again, luck, um, you know, some, some, some colleagues of mine were at a, um, were at a, a, um, a Swiss bank and they were looking for someone to come run uh, their middle office. Um, and I, you know, while I'd done lots of auditing and consulting, I'd never run, well, frankly, never run anything um, except in my, you know, when I was in university. Um, so I became the head of the middle office in, at UBS in Canada. And, and over a couple of years, you know, ran middle office, back office, technology, all sorts of different pieces. Um, and, and again, it's, that's complete luck. I happened to be in the right place at the right time. I didn't know anything about any of those subject matters. Um, but people trusted me to to figure, figure them out and organize teams and motivate teams to get, get issues resolved. You know, being at UBS Canada was really, really awesome. We were a small bank, 100 employees, you know, 20, 20 million in capital, I think, at the time. Um, and and uh, but because it was UBS Canada, we were part of the global UBS world. And uh, as it happened, the CEO of, UB, of UBS globally had married a Canadian, and so he he came back. Mathis Cavivetta came back came back to Canada four or five times a year uh, to see his wife's family. And since he was in Canada, obviously he came to visit the Canadian branch and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, we would, and I was on the executive team there. So we'd always get dinner with the chairman of UBS global. You know, we're, we're just this little pimple on the backside of the bank. You know, and here we are and just some young guy having dinner with the chairman of the bank, you know, four or five times a year. And the cool thing was because he came four or five times a year, the rest of his executive team felt the need to come too, at least once a year. And so, you know, I'm this young 30-year-old and I'm, I'm having dinner, you know, like almost every month with a member of the group executive board of UBS uh, globally and learning all sorts of really, really cool stuff. And so that, that again, opened my eyes to a whole bunch of other parts of, of financial services and really cemented my, my love for that business, for investment banking, for capital markets. It, you know, it's in my blood. It's what I do. And, and it also demonstrated to me that, that, that every aspect of it, at the end of the day, the technical stuff, you can either learn it or hire people who know it. Um, really where the skill comes is in managing the group of people, getting them motivated and getting them aligned 
in the focus on performance improvement, all that kind of stuff. Um, so that was a great, and I was only there two years. That's where I first started to learn about risk management and these things called Greeks. I'll tell you a little bit more about uh, later in the conversation. But uh, again, uh, two years at UBS, awesome. Uh, um, it was because of my network that I got the role. Um, the importance of a good network. We'll talk about that in a few minutes too, probably. Um, and then, uh, and then uh, BMO uh, hired me to come run their um, investment banking operations shop. And then BMO, you know, bearings had just happened. Uh, and everyone, for those of you who don't know, bearings was the first really big um, rogue trading kind of incident that brought down a, a storied British banking institution. And, uh, you know, as, as the rest of the world sort of looked at that, you know, they all worried, holy crap, can that happen here? Um, and, and, and BMO at the time had, had, had launched into derivatives um, and wanted to build a business, uh, but didn't really have the skill set internally. Now, the ops people there, their view was that, you know, we can support a new product if we get six months notice and yada, yada, yada. Well, in a fast-moving derivative space, and, and BMO had the, the strategy at the time to be a fast follower. They didn't want to be the, you know, the, the JP Morgan or Bankers Trust sort of uh, people at the bleeding edge, but they wanted to be fast followers. And they, they, did, they determined that they needed to have executives that could actually make that happen and, and turn things around effectively, be transformation agents. And so they brought me in to run operations. We brought uh, a colleague from outside from city to run technology. And, and uh, we found a risk manager internally and we found a, a business manager kind of person internally. And the four of us really became the backbone of supporting the business um, to grow, to build in the risk infrastructure, to build in the operations infrastructure, uh, to do all of those things in a, in a world where things didn't move very fast. I mean, you know, sleepy, sleepy investment banking back then, you know, the, the ops function, you know, I think green eye shades and mainframe computers and, you know, lots of red pencils kicking lots of, uh, kicking lots of uh, dot matrix reports. Um, you know, it really was a different world. And, and our job was to bring that into the, bring that into the future. So I did that for four years. Again, learned a lot, met a lot of great people. One of the things I figured out when I ran operations is that you can't do this in, um, in isolation. And so I, I, I built on my network and created a forum where the, the heads of the ops functions of the, of, the, uh, of the five big Canadian banks, we actually got together every three months, not to talk about any competitive issues, but most of what we did wasn't you know, secret sauce or competitive. And most of what we did, we could all learn from each other. And most of what we did, we could make sure that the regulators weren't playing any of us against each other because regulators sometimes do that. Uh, and so that a, built me a good network and a number of these other executives have gone on um, to be you know, mentors of mine as, as my career has grown. I've, I've appeared, it turns out on, I'm on boards with some of them. It's, it's, it's just really cool as you start to build that network. And after four years in ops, they asked me to take on market risk uh, oversight. And um, I knew not a lot about market risk oversight. And, and the reason they asked me to do it is like many banks at the time, the regulators were giving them a lot of grief on their VAR risk models, which, which drives capital, right. which is a big determinant of the profitability of the business. And, uh, you know, when the regulators don't like your capital models, they, they make you put up lots and lots of capital. So that my job was to fix whatever needed to be fixed so that the, the capital multiplier would go down so that they could do more business with the same amount of capital. And again, I knew nothing about market risk, um, but, you know, went in and built a team. And, you know, but three weeks into the, into the role, the, um, the, uh, the head of the investment banking division of the bank 
uh, comes behind me on the trading floor. I was sitting on the trading floor, taps me on the shoulder and says, Jean, and I can't do his accent, so I won't try. But, you know, Jean, we have a little problem in our commodity trading book. Um, it looks like we've really uh, potentially messed up the vol skew and we're going to lose some money. Can you, uh, can you look into it? So I said, okay. So we, you know, he walked away and I looked across the, across my trading desk to my deputy and I said, um, what the hell? I don't, I, I don't know what vol skew is, but it doesn't <laughs> sound like a good thing. You know, and fast forward, and eventually, we, you know, I, I think at the time we lost, uh, I think it was 40 or 50 or 60 million dollars back when that was real money. Um, yeah. And uh, and not only you know, were we in trouble with the regulators before I took on the role, we are now in more trouble with the regulators. But we might as well, I managed to persuade them that I was part of the solution and not the problem. And, and over a period of time, you know, we, we actually, you know, turned that around, changed the staff, changed the processes, got our VAR multipliers down, dealt with that issue. Um, and, uh, you know, again, I learned a lot about, uh, transformation and about regulation, about, uh, about risk. Uh, there's a funny story that at the time Bank of Montreal, we owned, uh, well, we still do, um, they still do Harris Bank in the U S and, and Harris Bank, a lot of the, a lot of the bank's market risk was done through Harris Bank in, in Chicago. And, uh, and we had market risk people down there, but uh, no one had talked to the local board. And even though it was hundred percent owned by by BMO, they're required to have an independent local board, you know, which was which was great, great people, but sort of, you know, people who ran local car dealerships and you know, maybe not as sophisticated as the board of the bank in Toronto. And someone thought it'd be a great idea if the Gagne went down and talked to them about the market risk that was on their books, just to have a sense of what it is. And then maybe, Jean, you should kind of instruct them a little bit about the risk metrics and how we... So, you know, some young guy, I don't know, 35 years old, go, go down to go down to Harris Bank to do my presentation to this group of people. And, and um, you know, I started talking about value at risk and what it is and why it matters. And, you know, tried to, I tried really hard to dumb it down um, um, so that it would be understandable. And they seemed to get it. And then I went on to what we call local measures of risk. So VAR is like a portfolio. This is how much the portfolio can win or lose. And then there are these Greeks, so Delta, Gamma, Vega tells you about how much a change in an interest rate or change in a stock price or uh, whatever can, 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 can cause in profits and loss. So, so I'm working through, you know, these deltas, delta, gamma, vega. I kept it really, relatively straightforward and, and I, you know, talk about the Greeks and how they relate to VAR. And then finally, one of the, one of the, I think it was the car dealership guy raises his hand and says, John, I understand everything you said. My only question is, I had no idea we were doing business in Greece. <laughs> and, I thought, okay, that was a waste of a day. But it, but it taught me again a lot about how do you actually explain complex things to people who have no background? Right. Um, how do you simplify and, uh, concepts? So, you know, so I, I have, you know, since that point, I've, I have, you know, in my career, I've had to testify, I call it, at, at board meetings, um, mm-hmm. at least quarterly, testify. sometimes monthly. And so you learn how to deal with that. I mean, board members, particularly in banks, I mean, you, you know, if you're a director at TD or BMO or whatever, the complexity of these organizations is spectacular and you have board meetings that go on for a whole day. And, that, and during that whole day, you, you delve into complex operational risk, you know, market risk, credit risk, business issues. Cre- like it's just, there are just so many things like as a director, right. it's an awful lot. And, and we as executives who live in one little space, we know our space really, really well. These board members have to understand all the spaces and they have to do it in a very short period of time. So it's really given me an appreciation for how you do that. And now as a corporate director, I sit on, I sit on four or five boards. Um, you know, it, I, I understand better what management is trying to do and, and can work with them to make sure that we actually achieve what they need to achieve and what I need to achieve as a director. 
Um, so BMO was great. I, I, you know, it was a transformative, you know, the, the learning for me again was I could, I could delve into new domains that I didn't know, um, um, learn them again, the, the value that I brought is the building a team, figuring out the problem, solving it, communication, um, dealing with regulators, that kind of stuff. And so it really started to cement my brand as a, as, as a transformation agent. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, if I was to give anyone advice to some of your listeners, George, it's, you need to think about as you grow your career, what do you want your brand to be, your story to be? And, right. and I increasingly believe it can't be about domain knowledge because domain, domain knowledge is changing so quickly. The world we live in is changing so quickly. The stuff you knew five years ago, you know, that you were God's gift to may not be relevant anymore. And so having right. domain knowledge is good. I mean, you need to know, you need to know something, but I think, I think you need to figure out what, what, what do you bring? to a problem, uh, what do you bring to an organization? And B, I think, you know, you need to make sure that you're, you're, you're building and curating a network of people um, that will allow you to learn from, you know, I have mentors. Um, I, I have mentors like you have mentors, George, and, you know, I call it my board of directors. They don't know that they're my board of directors, but you know, to me they are. And, and, you know, I go to them for, like you would with any board, for input on strategy, yeah. for advice, for, you know, approval of things that I'm trying to do. Um, so, so I think, you know, you want to build that, 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 you know, Dan Pink calls it find five to thrive and then, you know, who are the five people that are going to be your, your, your sort of serious board of directors as you work through and that group changes over your career, but it's really important to have one. And it's really important to have one that, that, that tells you when you're full of crap, uh, right. sometimes, cause we all are sometimes, and it's, it's sometimes good to have somebody you really trust and respect say, you know what, Sean, I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, so, so I, I really built that up in, in, in my, in my BMO days. I made a big point of, of going out and doing that. And, and again, you know, because of that, um, TD came calling. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, up until that point, I'd never really looked for a job except for my very first one. It's always someone that came calling and TD again, you know, had built a very complex book of derivatives, the most complex book in Canada. Um, there were about 5,500 deals. I can say this now because it was a long time ago, all on spreadsheets. Um, and, and they were kind of losing control of it. And they were starting to get in the way of growing the business because the regulators and the auditors and everyone is giving them lots of grief. And so, Sean, can you come fix this? So, okay, sounds like fun. So I moved across to, uh, to, uh, to TD. And unlike the marketer's job at, at BMO, where it took three weeks to have a crisis, here it was the second day in. Um, yeah, so I started on the on the first of, I can't remember, some month. And then the next day in, my two most senior people pop into my office and say, Jean, we have a problem. You know, the P&L is out of balance by, I can't remember the number, let's call it 100 million. And we didn't make that much in a month. So it was kind of hard to, um, and we don't know what it is and we quit. And it's, whoa, whoa, sit down, don't quit. Let's figure this out. And, you know, in, in the end, again, it, you know, out of adversity comes opportunity. So we, we were able to figure out, they didn't quit, by the way. We were able to figure out a process of how to fix this. Um, you know, I, I've always had my sky is falling deck. Those of you who do transformations know that typically 60 to 90 days in, you, know, you, you have the meeting with the responsible people and you tell them that the sky is falling and you need these resources and whatever so that you can make the transformation work. I, I have my standard one. You kind of change the names to protect the guilty and and uh, and whatever. You know, so, so, so at this bank, I was actually forced to have that conversation a couple weeks in, maybe a month in. And, um, and um and one of the things that, that, that cemented me as, as the TD was one of the best employers in the country was when we had that meeting, um, you know, my, my immediate boss 
so I do my sky is falling deck and basically that was a year SOX compliance was in two. So we had that we would have had to be SOX compliant, which with a full absence of controls in my little space, you couldn't do that. And uh, I basically said, you know, we need to do all this we need to do now. And by the way, I, I think, you know, we need to escalate this in the bank because it's a big deal. If we're not SOX compliant, that's going to be a big problem for Ed Clark. And, and so my, my boss said to, to his boss, because I had two layers in there, you know, maybe, you know, Jean, Jean's new here and, and, and maybe, you know, why don't we give him another month before we escalate and do anything? Because maybe, maybe he's, you know, exaggerating. Like, that's great support from my boss. Uh, but his boss said, you know what? That would have been old TD. Old TD was TD before Ed Clark turned up and emerges Canon Trust. At old TD, it's exactly what we would have done. At new TD, um, we all get fired if we do that. So I'm gonna call Ed, I'll call the head of investment banking. You know, Jean, how many Ernst and Young people do you want outside your office on Monday morning? And and you know, and, and they gave me the resources, they gave me the attention. Um, you know, some of the attention wasn't fun, like explaining to the board what was going on. Um, that were those were not fun meetings. But you know, it, it actually allowed me again to solve a problem, but to grow, to learn something new, to to continue to work on my communication skills and how you escalate issues. And uh, and we resolved it, and uh, you know, which, which was awesome. And and over the course of my you know time at TD, we actually ended up selling that book. Ed Ed, Ed was very uncomfortable with the structured derivatives. Um, by the way, I'll tell you a story. You know, we all these derivatives were on were on spreadsheets, and and you know you can lock down spreadsheets to some extent, but you can't really. And every one of these spreadsheets had all the cash flows and pretty complex valuation models. And it was the spreadsheets that didn't reconcile to the GL by that 70 million or 80 million, whatever it was. And so we did all sorts of different things. And one of the things I did is I paid a guy to come in and pick a spreadsheet at random and look at every cell. Just look at every freaking cell in the spreadsheet to see what was there. And we found this cell sort of way down at row, you know, you know, you know <laughs> XA100 that, that had this complex formula um, uh, plus a million. So there's wow. a complex formula, and then there's plus a million, and there's a little red thing on the corner. So you look back at the commentary. And the yeah. commentary says to bring books in line. So you kind of think this is one cell in one spreadsheet and the whole universe of complex deals. And someone has plugged it by a million. And because oh. we have no controls over spreadsheets at that point, uh, you don't know who. And so you start thinking, oh, my God. So I learned a lot, too, about, you know, you know, Mr. Gates's Excel tools are wonderful things. Um, but if you're going to use them for any kind of, uh, of, of, of uh, data that you rely on for any purpose, you better make damn sure that you have really strong controls to make sure they're not changed anywhere. And whether it's a personal thing you do to value portfolio, whether it's a complex valuation model, whether it's an inventory right. listing, whatever it is you care about, you put in spreadsheets. Spreadsheets are great, they're flexible, but they're dangerous. And so that was something we learned there. Anyway, we resolved all that. Um, in the course of my, I, I then moved out of operations there into uh, market risks. So I ran, uh, I ran trading risk services there. Uh, which is the oversight of all of the market risk roles. Uh, you know, great learning there. I, I did that during the financial crisis. Again, very lucky. Um, well, you know, I'm really glad I did it. I learned a lot. Never, ever want to do something like that again. You know, <laughs> I, I think thing. of the day, that, the day that Lehman went down and like it, it, those were tough, tough times. Again, TD was one of the most liquid, uh, safe banks in the world. So I'm much happier that I did it from the vantage point of TD than from, most of the other banks in the world who were having a much tougher time than we were, but it was tough. And we had some difficult issues with regulators. We had some liquidity issues. You know, we had some, we had to make some decisions around the support that TD would provide to other parts of the 
it's a natural ecosystem in cannabis that we wouldn't avoid, you know, contagion. Um, I, again, I learned a lot, got to interact with a lot of very senior people. And just to make it interesting, right at the beginning of the financial crisis, we actually had a rogue trading incident in our London office. Um, and, uh, you know, which ended up costing the bank, I don't know, $100 million. Again, that was still real money. The financial crisis hasn't happened yet. And 100 bucks was a lot of money. And, and Ed decided, you know, as, as many CEOs do, not to let a good crisis go to waste. And so we should look at all of our, uh, we call it GCRM, all of our governance uh, control and risk management activities in the trading floor, in the trading business at TD. We hired PW uh, to come in and, and at very great expense, um, you know, write a report which had 259 recommendations, um, you know, 230 of which I would need to address. Um, and again, you know, I was, you know, given the roles I had, I was viewed as part of the solution, not part of the problem. But, you know, we're dealing with a financial crisis, we're dealing with, with uh, you know, a loss, and we're dealing with 259 recommendations. You know, this is, you know, I, I'm, I'm an executive, I've never really had a day job where I have to, you know, do, um, um, which I'm lucky because I'm not good at. But, you know, I, I remember when Ed first found out about the loss, he said, it was like a Thursday, we're going to press release this on Monday, um, actually Tuesday, I think Monday was Canada Day. Um, and, you know, I need a number. And the number has got to be right because we're not changing it. And he looked at me and one of my fellow executives and said, I want the two of you to reverse engineer whatever you have to reverse engineer to figure out what the loss is. And the two of you can sign the memo with the number and it better be right. And so me and one of my fellow executives spent a weekend, you know, just going through the whole, we called it IPV, independent price verification process uh, around a very complex book of derivatives. And um, we learned our wow. procedures weren't as our procedures weren't as documented as well as we had thought they were. And so we just, so he and I went, went through this process and every time we'd get stuck, no matter what time of day or night it was, we'd call whoever in the team was responsible for that and have them come in and show us how to get to the next step. And we, we you know, we got to a number and it was largely right. So, hey, you know, there you go. I guess I can do some doing. But yeah, it was, it's again, you learn there, right? How do you deal with crisis? How do you, how do you deal with uncertainty? How do you communicate bad news? How do you solve a problem? Um, mm. How do you manage 230 recommendations by trying to run a day job and deal with a financial crisis? Um, and it, so again, it was, it was a lot of fun, a ton of learning, um, uh, made a lot of, you know, broaden the network. Um, so really glad I did that. And then, you know, the again, on the basis of my network, uh, I was recruited to come and work there, be the CEO of the Canadian Depository for Securities. Um, total change. He'd asked me, you know, 20 years before, would I ever want to run a clearinghouse? I would have said, A, what is it? And if you told me, I would have said, no way. Yeah. Uh, so for those of you who don't know, um, at the time, CDS was a utility in the market in Canada that was responsible for the settling of every bond, stock, money market trade done in Canada. So they basically move a trillion dollars of value every day at four o'clock so that tomorrow you have the securities you bought or the cash that you should have in your bank account. It's the most important um, thing in capital markets you probably don't see or know about, right? As, as an average trader. It is. We'll I, yeah. It's to totally right. And, you know, I remember trying to explain to my parents what, 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 what I was now responsible for, and I wasn't <laughs> successful. And I basically said, if you ever see my name in the newspaper, um, that'll be a really bad day for Canada. Um, Leave Canada. So, <laughs> yeah. And so, so, so basically making sure all this money moves every day is critical to capital markets. Everything falls over if it doesn't work. And it was a utility owned by the banks. Um, and it was run um, 
uh, as a utility. So it didn't make any money. There's no creativity. There's no marketing. Nobody had any authority. Um, and I joined it just after TMX had bought it. So it became a for-profit organization. And so they wanted me to be creative and find new sources of business and cut costs and do all of that other exciting stuff. And, and I remember my last interview was with the chair of the board because they had to have an independent board because of how important they were for Canada. And it was actually in a, in a restaurant at the airport at, uh, in Chicago because I was flying to one place and he was flying to another and we figured we could meet there. And uh, so we had, we had a great lunch, a great hour and a half kind of conversation about all the things that were going on. And at the end of it, he sort of starts pointing at my tie, you know, Jean, you need to understand, we need you to do all this creative stuff, but you can never, ever lose money. You can never have a loss of any kind at CDS. We don't have losses. So I said, well, that's a pretty tall order because usually when I shake things up, I don't get everything right. And, you know, I promise you there aren't going to be big losses, but there's going to be losses. There's no question. And, you know, oh, I don't know, he said. So I said, listen, you know, this is a time to figure out. I'm not your guy if that's what you want. And by the way, you're not going to transform anything if you don't give people license to take risks. And so he finally wrapped his mind around it and I joined the firm and it was crazy. Like we, we, had a, we had a policy, we, you know, we had so many policies, you know, one of which was I couldn't have a, I called the space heater policy. I wasn't allowed to have a coffee machine, you know, with an X number of feet of a desk. And it's like, seriously, I'm the CEO. <laughs> Can I not override that policy? Um, you know, and, and people would be coming into my office like every hour mm. asking for approval for this, that, and the other thing, like for really stupid shit. And for a number of days, I kind of gave my approvals. And I finally figured out, wait a minute, what am I doing? So I finally, the next time up. somebody came in, I said, you know what? Right, you guys are all smart. I pay you guys a lot of money. You go make the decision. Um, I'm not, and and I learned something really important about risk management there because this actually pervaded everything that uh, the organization did. I had, I had spent my life doing risk management in a bank in the trading floor, where your job is to contain risk. The traders want to take a lot of risk because for a trader, when you take a lot of risk, you can make a lot of money, and if you make a lot of money, you get a big bonus. If you lose a lot of money, the worst that happens is you get fired and you go somewhere else and start all over. So, so it's a really, to be a trader is a really asymmetric bet. Um, and and, and um, if I'm a little bit bitter about that, that's, that shouldn't come out. Uh, but, but it really is, a, it's a bizarre, it's a really, I think, a bizarre way to structure a compensation structure. But so our job as risk managers was to contain that risk, to make sure they didn't take risk outside of, you know, limits and a sandbox that we created. When I went to CDS, the problem was the other way. They... They had for so long been told not to take risk and people have been punished for taking risk that they wouldn't take any. And I'm trying to say, take some risk, make a decision, make a bet, invest some money, you know, take away a control. We used to reconcile bank accounts three times. And I don't mean that you reconcile it, two people reviewed it. I mean, three people independently reconciled the same bank account and compared the results. It's like, that's just nuts. Um, but it shows that there was no appetite for risk. And so when I would say, go take risk, a, they didn't know how to do it because they had never done it. And B, even if they did know, the last time they saw someone take risk, you know, that person got slapped around. So there's no freaking way I was going to take risk. And this, the Gagne guy, he's new. Like, I don't, you know, uh, like, I don't know. I remember meeting with one executive one afternoon. You know, Mr. Degagne, you think you're so smart. You're going to come in here and change everything. Well, let me tell you, this too shall pass and we will go back to what we've always done. I said, Not no. Really. <laughs> so, so that relationship didn't last long, I have to say. Um, but, you know, we actually, you know, but it, it was tough, you know, and, and, and um, this is an organization that, you know, could never lose $10, but had agreed to 
again, at the behest of the banks who drove all this, had agreed to a set of risk management models and collateral models um, where you could actually conceivably lose a billion dollars. And, you know, our primary job as a clearinghouse is to protect those, 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 those uh, transactions that I talked to you about earlier, make sure they happen, but also to make sure that if somebody defaults in the process, the system doesn't follow up. Mm-hmm. That, in fact, is our primary job. I would say everything else is kind of secondary. That way. My job is to make sure Canada's capital market system doesn't fall over because of a major, a major default. And we had built risk models that were convenient for the banks, but that permitted, that would have allowed for that. And so you look at, again, risk management. We controlled all the small stuff, but we ignored the big stuff that actually was what mattered. And so we had to change all of that. That was a necessarily an interesting cultural exercise. But, you know, after a couple of years there, you know, we had, we had achieved a lot of that. And all that was left to do after that was really to re- revamp their, their big mainframe COBOL programmed uh, technology. And by the way, if you know any COBOL programmers, I'm sure that uh, CBS might still hire them because uh, they haven't completely moved from that technology yet. They're hard to find now. Most of them are older than me and, uh, and grayer than me and closer to death than I am. So uh, anyone who knows COBOL is still worth his weight in gold. Um, but you go. you know, and then TMX asked me to come run the technology for the exchange. Again, I, I know something about technology, but running a technology where trades clear in microseconds and your system can't be down, you know, one millisecond a day because everyone's got to be able to trade. I mean, that, that's a tall order. And we did it at a time when there was, you know, lots of stuff going on. So we had to transform that. So again, you know, I pretended to be CIO for a year. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we basically created a transformation agenda to, to, uh, to go forward. And then, and then I hired a real one because there was no way I, was, I had the technical depth to to, uh, to be able to drive that. And that's a, another lesson is you need to know when you're out of your depth uh, mm-hmm. and where, you know, despite how good you think you are, you actually, there are things you can't do. And so, uh, and so we brought in a, we brought in a, a new CIO and eventually at TMX, I ended up running um, most of the functions outside of, uh, outside of the, the, the data business and the trading business. And um, in my last year there, uh, I ran their data business and analytics business and helped them mm-hmm. acquire Trayport, which again, the, the biggest acquisition I had worked on kind of as the primary business sponsor. I've worked on many acquisitions before, but this was the first one where I was the primary business sponsor. And it was very exciting. It's a very, very cool business. And it continues to be uh, one of the biggest sources of growth, I think, George, in, in, in your company. And and uh, it's great to watch from the sidelines. Again, learned a whole brand new business you know, in a new ecosystem in, in Europe and, you know, dealt with the issues around Brexit and a lot of geopolitical risks. So, um, the right. theme in all of that, I think, is, A, I've been lucky, and I haven't said this, but I'll say it now. Uh, most of the jobs people have given me are jobs where I was woefully unqualified to take. And right. people took a chance on me, and I had a track record which allowed them to do that. But I was so incredibly lucky to work for executives that were willing to take a chance on me and give me the support I needed to succeed. But really, you know, in a sense, they took a big bet. And, and so, you know, for all of all of your listeners and other people that are in senior roles, um, you know, I encourage you to take some big bets, find some people who are up and comers in your organization, who, who have talent, who've been able to get stuff done and give them stuff they're not qualified for. It, it, it always blows my mind when people only hire people that are qualified for the jobs they take. If I'm already qualified, I'm not going to grow. Why should I take the job and why should you give it to me? Um, and so that, that was a good lesson for me is, is really, really, and, and, and I went out of my way when I, when I just decided whether to go work for someone, um, mm. you know, that was part of my analysis. Is this someone who's going to help me grow? Is this someone who's going to give me chances? Is this someone who's going to, you know, allow me to learn something new or experience something new or, 
because I, you know, I, I think it's really important back, back to what I was saying at the beginning around um, your brand and whatever, you need to be constantly building your bag of tricks. The world, you know, as we said, as we all know, is changing uh, so fast. And if you're not adding to the experiences, the knowledge, the network, the whatever that you have, then, then you're actually falling behind because the world is moving, you know, faster than you're moving. Think about word problems back in algebra, right? If, if A is, is accelerating faster than B, B is going to fall farther and farther behind. So I think we all, it's all incumbent on all of us to make sure that we're doing that. How did you do that, though, Jean? Just a quick question there. I think, yeah, just maybe that around the house. So there's a bunch of different hows, right? There's 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 allowing yourself to be exposed to experiences that you're not comfortable with, or that you don't feel you have the capabilities to do. Having people who who having a network of people who know you and trust you and and can make those opportunities available, and we can do a whole other talk on networking on time today. But but I also emphasize the importance of of, of having a, a much broader understanding of the world. You know, it's great to be, you know, a, a finance expert or a lawyer or whatever, know your domain well and keep learning it. That's not enough because the really creative things that happen in the world today are when people bring two or three ideas together that haven't brought, been brought together before. The only way you can be one of those people is you, if you have access to a whole bunch of different ideas outside of the regular space that you can then connect or if you have access to a whole bunch of different people in your network that are very different that you can connect. And so I have advice for each of those things. So on the, on the ideas, you know, you have to read broadly. You know, those of you who read my LinkedIn know that I say often more books, less news. Less news. news is great, but you know, you, you can spend the day listening to CNN or Fox or whatever you listen to, and you're not getting smarter. Mm. You invest half that day reading a really good book and you will be smarter. And, and there are some awesome, really good books out there. Most of them are older than new. Um, the, you know, the business books that come out now, some of them are good, but most of them are rehash of ideas that have been out there a long time. Um, but there's, there's a lot of really awesome books. And you, you want to know some history. You want to know some politics. You want to know some right. biology. You want to just read outside of your space and, and you'll be able to connect things that you haven't connected. And ditto on the networking. Now, I might have told you the story before, George, but I had an executive coach once and we were actually talking about networking. So I, had, I had an awesome network, but they're all, they're all bankers, lawyers, and accountants. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but you know, there, there are other people in the world. And, and, and I remember she said to me, you know, Jean, we need to expand your network. And I said, well, I don't know how to do that. These are the people I hang out with. And she said, well, did you read the Globe and Mail? I said, yeah. So I want you to read the Globe and Mail. And, and every week, I want you to pick a story in the Globe that stands out to you. Just somebody did something cool. And it can't be a banker, a lawyer, an accountant. That's the only ground rule. And I want you to take that story. And I want you to call that person and say, hey, George, I read about you in the Globe and Mail when you did blah, blah, blah. I'm really fascinated about, you know, what you learned or how, how hard it was. Actually, it doesn't matter what you ask. Just, I'm really fascinated about something. And I, I wonder if you would, you know, have coffee with me just so I could learn a bit more about that. And, and you know, I learned a lot from them. Number one, I learned, um, you know, I, I was quite afraid of rejection when I first started. I was like, I'm not going to cold call people. What if they tell me to go get the stuff? hang up? <laughs> the reality is, like, maybe five out of 100 people didn't say yes to something. And you know what, those five people, I didn't know them before the call. I don't know them after the call. I'll never see them again. Who cares? All they've lost is, you know, five minutes of my life. Um, but the other 95, you'd either get, they'd either talk on the phone or you get a coffee, lunch. I've spent whole days in organizations learning about um, other businesses uh, um, just because, because people let me. And here, here's a lesson from that. Like mm. to me, 
people love to talk about themselves. I'm doing it now. Um, and so you give them an opportunity to do that. They will take it more often than not. People like the sense of paying it forward and being a mentor. So they will take it. Um, and you will build a network because the best way to build a network is not to ask something, it's to give something. Right. I give you the opportunity to talk about yourself. I, I give you something, an article, whatever. That's how you build a network. So that when you need it and have to ask for something, all of that legwork's been done. But more importantly, if you have a broad network and you're having conversations that are broad and outside of your domain, and you do a lot of reading, and you're someone who puts all that together, you will you will come up with all sorts of cool ideas, domain knowledge, and 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 and, and approaches to achieving whatever it is you want to achieve. It is a very, very worthwhile investment of time to build that network and to do some some reading outside of your space. And it almost doesn't matter where you do it. And, and if you don't want to read, there's lots of audiobooks, there's great podcasts like this one. There's, there's all sorts of other ways to achieve that. Um, you know, the, the teaching company runs university courses that you listen to. So you get the best professors in the world talking right. about, you know, accounting and finance if you want. But the history of music, the history of China, geopolitics, I mean, that kind of stuff too. And so again, you know, as you're walking around, as you're jogging, as you're, no one goes to work anymore, but you know, as you're, as you're going to wherever you're going, you're listening to these things and you're learning and you know, so, so those are some of the things I, I, I'm, I'm a very curious guy. And so it makes many of these interactions and this reading easier. Um, I, um, I interact with my books. I, I don't read a book without a pencil in hand and I scribble all over it, the stuff I like and, you know, I write bullshit beside the stuff I don't agree with. And so, but again, it, that forces you to really think about what you're reading and, and relate it to other things that you've learned. And that's you how you build that, that, that data bank, uh, the database of ideas um, that right. you can then try to apply uh, in different types of ways. And it positions you to take on things where you don't have the domain knowledge. Cause you've actually in, in, in trying to learn about other spaces in the world, you actually start to uh, create for yourself a methodology for learning domain knowledge. So, if I'm listening to the history of music or, or how, how to write a symphony, it's not something right. I, I would do innately, but you know, I learn how to learn. And then I can apply that to all sorts of other different places. So I've been very lucky to have lots of opportunities to do that. And then the opportunities sort of feed each other. But, but I think it's, a company, it, it's, it's, it's within the reach of any of us to start to create those opportunities, start small. And connecting the dots. Like that, that's one of the things I always took from you. I mean, aside from, I still remember... Uh, when I, you know, when I first joined TMX, we were sitting across from each other in the boardroom and those two tenants that you just shared with everyone, which I really wanted you to share, right? Build a, a big network and, and one that's diverse outside of your domain. And then the other one is just work with like executing, I think is the most important part. Uh, and then now what you, what you highlighted, which is building your brand and thinking about what you want people to define you as I thought was, was super interesting. You kept using luck a lot in, in your, in your story. And I think there is some part to that, but you also, like, as you explained it, you positioned yourself really well. You knew the right people. You always took weird risks. You were creative in getting there even when you didn't know the solution. I'm curious, like, how do you navigate and actually execute in a corporation when someone, I was talking to, to a Telfer alum, a colleague, uh, sorry, not a colleague at TMX, but someone I know at TD, and he's like, dude, it's a 90,000 employee, you know, company or whatever, and it's tough to stand out. So how did you differentiate? Because I think that's the part where, I think people want to dig a little deeper is like, how, how do you differentiate yourself among 90, hundred thousand people at a bank? How did you do that? Well, so, so, you know, I, I, I entered the bank as a vice president. So you're already sort of in the top, you know, top several percent. A bit higher. Um, yeah. So it's higher, but, but, but there's still, you know, at the time there were still, I don't know, um, you know, 300 vice presidents and a hundred, 
you know, senior vice presidents and 35 EVPs. So you're still exactly. in a big group. <laughs> so I think, you know, I mean, you, you said one of the words that's, that's, that I haven't emphasized. It's also important. Like execution and delivery mm. is critical. And, you know, I, I don't know how many leadership courses and seminars and speeches I've sat through where they talk about all the lovely things about leadership. And, and George, you know, I give one of these. I have a talk I give in this space, too. And you talk about all the things that leaders do. But many of them miss the most fundamental thing is, is that you actually have to deliver. All of that other soft shit, you could be God's gift to team building and <laughs> morale and, you know, but, but you can actually can't execute. None of that matters. And so, you know, rule number one, I think, in my career has been you always, always deliver. Even if you're in a job that's soul destroying and we all go through jobs that are soul destroying because you have to, uh, even if it's soul destroying, even if you don't like the team, even if you don't want to be there, you still have to deliver. Obviously, on the side, look for something better. Um, because because the the downside of having a big network is if you don't deliver everyone's gonna a know people, a lot of people <laughs> are gonna know uh, the upside of a big network is when you do deliver people do know and and your brand gets built and so i've all execution for me has always been has always been uh, a top 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 priority and i have high standards for myself anything i do uh i need to do to the best of my ability even if i hate it um and then I try to you know, position myself so I don't, have, I don't have to do that thing I hate anymore. Um, but so execution is critical. Having that, 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 uh, that broad network is critical. And it's critical for a whole bunch of reasons. A, because people can see you execute. Uh, B, because you're learning and can bring back ideas that are useful. C, because you can take what you know and the ideas you have and feed them to other people. Because a, a network, as I said, a network is built on reciprocity. Um, and it's always better if you pay it forward. I, I've always made a point uh, of, of sharing ideas. I still do it on LinkedIn. I used to have a mailing list of things I shared. Business, I, would, I would always, I would always advance ideas, things that I'd read, people I'd met. Um, um, and that, that creates a, you're adding value. Um, and if you can introduce two people in different parts of your network that don't know each other and create kind of another node, another nexus for new ideas, that's really powerful too. And they'll never forget that you did that. Something really good comes out of it. Um, but to me, it's execution, having a strong network, continuing to be open to new ideas and sharing new ideas and helping other people build success. And, and the last one is um, surrounding yourself with awesome people. And, you know, I, when I look back at the things I've achieved in my career, the thing I'm the most proud of, I actually haven't talked about today yet. The thing I'm the most proud of are, are the people in my, in my circle, like you, George, and like many others, that I've played a very small part in helping them grow their careers. And I look around and I can, there's people all over capital markets and in Toronto that I can point to and say, you know what? I had a role in what she's accomplished or what he's accomplished. And, and, and that's, that's to me is the value I think the power, but not only is that something that makes me feel good, which it does, but it actually, if you have a reputation for doing that, the best people are going to want to work with you. They're going to want to work for you. They want to help, want to help you get things done. And people know leaders who are, who have, followers, if I can use those words, not the right words, and they're more likely to give a role to someone who's a very powerful team leader and builder than someone who's not. And I have always viewed my role, uh, you know, whatever the domain job was, obviously is a key part of the job description, building and developing talent and exporting it to other parts of the organization has always been very, very high on my list of personal priorities, whether it was on my scorecard or not. Um, and in some places it wasn't, um, but, it, but it really, is a, is a big focus and people know that. So, you know, it's not, so, so, so again, at the end of this, not complex, you know, you, you deliver, you have a good network that knows you deliver, you add value, 
both in terms of the role you have and in terms of helping other people add value in their roles and you develop people. You do it consistently day in, day out on good days and bad days. Um, and you do it indirectly too. Like I think that, that that's one of the, the most, uh, the, the most interesting part of, of having known you this long uh, through different roles and different things that we've done together, even in, indirectly. For me, like the, the way you've been a mentor is actually more indirect than direct in, in things that you probably may have not even noticed, you know, that you did directly. It's not like I came to you for, and I didn't do this, but it would, the ones that stick with me at least were always the indirect stuff. So when you gave us, uh, you know, when you gave us uh, not only your time, but, but really your, your belief when we were building up trust and, uh, and value capital that became TCF, uh, which is like a, an actual endowment, right? At, at Telfer, like doing that when we were in our second and third year, that was an indirect thing that was like, holy shit, dude, you know, an executive in capital markets, someone who's, you know, I mean, this is all the guy, like for, for him to even take notice when nobody did, I think that was a pivotal moment. The other thing, I don't know if you remember this, but when I first joined TMX, um, I asked you for, for just an hour. Uh, I just wanted to go for lunch. You know, I'm Middle Eastern. So in, in, in the Middle East, when you take out an executive or whatever, you usually expect like a steak, a nice, you know, nice. So I'm like, Yo, I'm like John, where would, you, where would you like to go? Should we go to the keg maybe? Or, I know it's not the fanciest place, but let's go to somewhere nice. And you're like, let's just get somebody to go to my office. And I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> like, that's it? Really? You'd be down for that? And you're like, yeah, hey, let's just keep it informal. We went, we had a great chat for an hour. And that was, and I remember I called my dad right after. I'm like, dad, guess what? How, you know, because again, in the middle, it's just a very different culture. Mm-hmm. But to be able to sit across from an exec, obviously a mentor and, and now a really good friend to chat informally for an hour. Those were some of the, the very pivotal indirect ways that stuck with me and what I try to do now as I progress within my career. Just, just so you, you know, know, you know, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I, I, I've always for almost most of my career, participated in on-campus recruiting. And, and it's directly related to what you just said. And, and I remember someone challenging me, and Deganya, you're a senior executive, what are you doing going to campus? Like, yeah, seriously. Why time? And I said, you know, and, and, and why do you do all this work with Telfer, which yeah, I'm very involved with my alma matters, you know. And, mm-hmm. and, and the answer then is the same answer I give today. The, that mentoring, that involvement with, with people who are coming into our business is incredibly powerful. And I got to tell you, George, I learn as much from doing it as you might learn from sitting on the other side of the table, because there's new ideas, new ways of thinking. Um, as an executive, it gives you a sense of what's going on in the organization, which which is hard to get mm-hmm. when you're in a senior role. Um, and and so it's powerful for all those reasons. And it's powerful for the reason that it's, it's so much more fun than the budget meeting you're going to have to go to after that formal lunch. And so okay. it actually, you know, one of the, one of the, benefits I've gotten out of mentoring because we all, we, you know, there's gotta be something in it for all of us right? other than the learning and all that great stuff. It, it, it actually, um, it feels good. The, it's the opposite of soul destroying. Like it yeah. really, it, it builds you up and it, it helps you kind of face the, the more uh, mundane or difficult or, or soul destroying parts of your roles. And so, you know, I, so, so that would be my selfish reason for, for, I guess, doing that kind of stuff. Gotcha. I got uh, maybe two more questions before we, we wrap up. And this was one of the, 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 the best kind of podcasts I could do because I asked the question, let you, and I knew this would happen, let you roll with it. And it's funny, man, I've, I've, li- I've listened to your story a couple of times now. And every time you say it, there's always something new that I pick up. Um, the one thing that you talk about, like you've held a lot of executive positions, you've, you've been on boards, you've talked to a lot of influential people. I'm curious if there was one coffee, chat, uh, a lunch, a dinner that really was a tipping point in your career. Or maybe life. I, I, I can't think of a particular conversation. 
um, I can think of particular people um, who, who, you know, over the course of our relationship have made a really, really big difference in my career. Some of whom know it, some of whom know it, and some of whom don't um, um, know the impact that they've had on my career. So I, I can't point to one, uh, one specific one, but there, there are just so many. You know, it's interesting. I was, I'm on the board of CPA Ontario, and one of the things that we do every year is we, there's a big exam you got to write to become a CPA, and you know, we, we give out CPAs to those who pass. We just did that last week. Congrats um, on the repeat, we, by the but, way. For those who know. What's that? I was just like, congrats oh, on the repeat. Yeah. The members chose to reelect me in infinite wisdom. Um, but you know, so but 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 prior to the pandemic, we 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 would take the the top hundred people in the country. It's called the honor roll, and there's usually a group of them in Ontario, and we take them out to dinner. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, this, you know, CPA Ontario, we do three really big flashy events. One is the dinner for the for the for the honor roll with their families, and it's a really really swanky dinner in, in a ballroom at the Four Seasons, and it's gorgeous. You know, the the the, the swankier one is the is the the we award fellows to 50 fellows every year and we just did that last night um that's a really swanky event and then there's the big graduation with thousands of people but that dinner i'm sitting at the dinner with uh with um you know a kid and his family from ottawa from pw in ottawa uh, where i started my career and and there was a manager that was instrumental in helping grow my career uh at the time and i said you know do you know uh uh, uh carol um uh, I won't use last names to protect the innocent, but he said, yeah, she, that, that's the first manager I ever had. And I said, interesting. That's the first manager I ever had. Um, and, and, you know, and she's a great leader because of all, all this kind of stuff. And, and it's funny. So a month later, I'm in Ottawa. So I, because I actually called Carol up and we had a really nice breakfast and caught up on, you know, all these great things. And I told her some of the things that she had done for me, not realizing, you know, at a very pivotal early stage in my career, made a whole bunch of things happen for me that, 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 you know, I won't say led to everything else, but I think it had a significant role in decisions I made because decisions all pile on, right? That every time you have a path and make a choice that creates a new set of decisions. And, and so the role she played and, you know, the roles other people have played, you know, Colleen Johnson at, at TD, um, more indirect and direct role, but a huge role in my career. Um, uh, you know, Paul Angel at TD, um, you know, a guy by the name of, uh, uh, Mel, who, who was the guy who brought me over to UBS and got me out of consulting and got me into global capital markets and created the circumstances or got exposed to all these senior people. And like, there's a whole bunch of people like that in your career. Um, so for me, like if I were to start to give credit to people, it'd be a really long podcast because there'd be a lot of names, um, but they all play a pivotal role. So no, I don't remember a specific conversation, but I can think of lots and lots of people who played a role. Then, then just to parlay that really quick, um, You've obviously been a leader. You, you're talking to a lot of leaders. How do you define personally leadership? So it's, I mean, it's a combination of things. I, I think it's a combination of attributes, which when taken together, um, constitute leadership. And you don't have to be a boss to be a leader. Mm-hmm. Anyone can be a leader anywhere in, your, anywhere in any organization or in life. So I think a leader is someone who gets things done, either directly or indirectly. A leader is someone who... Um, who is able to motivate and build teams. Um, and, and motivation is something that's really critical to, to the role that we play as leaders in our personal and professional lives. And motivating means getting people aligned with your purpose, giving them the necessary autonomy to get stuff done that they need to get done and helping them master the thing they have to master. Um, so, so motivation, team building is critical. I think um, um, 
courage. Courage is huge. And we haven't talked much about that today, but the courage to take a tough decision, the courage to do something new, the courage to stand up and say, the sky is falling, the courage to like that, that is leaders do that. Leaders don't round corners. They don't hide stuff. They're open and transparent about stuff that's going on. So transparency, integrity, trust, all of those types of things, critical to a leader. Uh, the minute like, I've always built my career where I trust everyone implicitly um, and the trust is yours to lose. But if you lose it, like I can't deal with you anymore. But that's just a black and white rule for me. Um, and um, um, so that to me is a, a really important thing. I, I work with people the other way who start with no trust and you have to earn every bit of it. That's stupid. Uh, life is much better when you trust people. Um, you know, side story. I've been retired now for two and a half years. And the one big change I've made in my life since I retired is I refuse to work with anyone I don't like. And so, um, and I know in corporate land, it's hard to do that. Um, I have the luxury of being able to do that. And boy, is it, boy, is it good. And it helps, it makes it easier for you to be a leader because uh, I don't have to question integrity and all of that. So, so we've talked about delivery, motivation, integrity, um, courage, humility, which is the other side of, of, of an integrity, courage, um, um, I mean, those are some of the, some of the key ones, obviously, uh, some ability to, uh, to define, uh, uh, you know, to motivate people, wherever you've got to motivate them to do something. So you have to define that thing that they need to do. So communication skills and the ability to conceptualize something in a manner that people understand and can, and can relate to and can buy into. Um, those are all, I mean, I'm probably missing some, but those are some of the key things I think that, 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 that good leaders do. Um, gotcha. And they, they, they empathize. Um, they have an ability to, to sort of, uh, you know, understand what people are feeling and understand, um, you know, when you need to push harder, when you need to pull back and all those other types of things. Amazing. Well, I got one more for you. And, and obviously, I mean, I, we can have a four hour podcast, man, but I want to be con mm -hmm. uh, conscious of the time. Uh, just the last one. I know you read a lot of books. People love to, to know what people, other people are reading. So curious, maybe just on, I know you read a lot of fiction as well, some spy novels, if I'm not mistaken, but uh, for the business ones. O only on the beach. On, exact. <laughs> uh, what would be kind of the, oh, and by the way, I think, I don't know if it's here or not, but uh, I remember you gave me, let me just take a quick look here. Uh, where is it? No, it's not here. Um, you gave me a book once. Um, I'm, I'm blanking on the, on the name. You'll probably bring this up, but it's, a, it's one of your like more managerial a Canadian author, managerial business book. Uh, I don't know if you're, you're, you'll bring it up. But anyways, I'm banking on the name now. Um, what would you say would be the top three or five list of business books that had the most impact or that you would give to so, someone? Yeah, so so I, I have been reading business books recently. I've, I've, I've fallen into history books and I'm not a history buff per se, but you kind of read one and it's just, I've been in a big stack of them now. But, you know, I, I think... The business books, which really made a difference to me, uh, one of my very favorite writers is Dan Pink. Um, and Dan Pink wrote Drive, which is really about motivating knowledge workers. And that one's incredibly powerful. And there's, there's some, some really good ideas about purpose, mastery, and autonomy there that, that, that show up in all, all sorts of other places now and using different words. But that's one that's made a big difference in my life. I mean, going back to the some some old ones that, that tried but true, um, um, you know, Covey's Seven Habits, um, mm -hmm. that continues to be a powerful book. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, the good to great, again, mm -hmm. really good sort of um, 
um, book. A number of Thiel's written a couple of books around startups and all that kind of stuff. And the, the titles will come back to me now, but uh, they're quite powerful. Um, I, I've, I've always um, placed a lot of stock in, in uh, again, a really old book, but it's uh, the old books are good and there aren't a lot of new ideas. Uh, 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 Uri's book on negotiation, getting to yes. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and I, I had, the, I had the, the opportunity when I was at BMO to actually attend a, a week-long seminar at Harvard uh, Law School that he taught on negotiation, which was really, really cool. Wow. Um, um, what else jumps up from a business perspective? There's a number of good books around, uh, around uh, having um, hard conversations. So Crucial Conversations is, is a really good book, and it really helps position people. Because, you know, we're, as humans, we're all uh, conflict avoidance machines, and we're all really, really good at it. Very true. So we, we put off the hard conversation with our, with our spouse or partner or kids or boss or colleague or whatever until you kind of back into a corner. And if you'd had the conversation earlier, life would be better for everybody. Um, and, and this book was a really good and the helping sort of frame, A, that you have to do that and B, how you actually do that. Because, you know, it's hard to do that. No one wants to give really bad news. And, and so, that, so that was another one that stood out for me. I, I could go on and on and there's so many. Um, but those are all books that uh, that uh, I love. And, and, and then an absolutely non-business book, which has business implications, is my favorite book of all time, uh, which is uh, The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. And The Little Prince is really, I read it as a great kid, book. and it was a great kid's cartoon book, but I still reread it probably once a year. It's an awesome book about relationships and friendship and reciprocity, and it's, it's, it, which are words I've you know used throughout the last hour. And it really is a nice way to contextualize and, and that, that sort of um, that sort of whole um, thing. Um, and yeah. so back, back to my point of it, there's lots of books outside of our regular domain that teach you a lot about our, our regular domain. Make sure to share that with you. I've already done podcast.